Hi, podcast listeners, and welcome to the 6th November 2019 Hong Kong Stories podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. Juliet asked, what's in a name? Well, Hong Kongers understand the power and attraction of names. Many of us have several names to suit our circumstances, names for work, names in our government ID, and names among our friends. Names affect us in strange ways, and today as we walk through the suddenly cooler streets in Hong Kong, we'll be listening to a story from Mel and thinking about the power of anthroponymy. After Mel's story, we'll hear one recorded in 2017 from Frida about the cost of a picture. Before we get to this week's stories, however, a big hug goes out to our loyal Hong Kong listeners. We know the world is difficult just now, and we want to say thanks and stay safe. Thanks go out to our overseas listeners as well. This week, hellos go out especially to listeners in Brampton, Canada, Accra, Ghana, and Vero Beach in Florida, and Beach Haven in New Jersey in the USA. Thanks for letting our stories into your ears. The host of our December show, Salwai, is working very hard to get together the stories for the 4th of December live show at The Fringe. Mark your diaries. Tickets will be on sale soon for the show. You can find the ticketing link and all the other information you need about us at hongkongstories.com. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than drama. It's better than comedy. It's real life. And now with the story from our June show with the theme, Rewind. Here is Mel. In my early teens, I had a crisis of confidence. I suddenly realized that I wasn't the prettiest or funniest or most popular girl at school. And um, in those, yeah, in those really early, fragile, formative years, identity was everything. I really needed something to like anchor my identity to, something to make me special. So I thought about it for a long time. What makes people special? And then I came up with the answer. The one thing I needed to solve all my problems was a better name. Now my mom had named me Melanie after her best friend. Most people think that's a perfectly normal name. Not me. I watched how people responded to other names, like Aurora. That is such an exotic name. Not mine. Like we have these preconceived notions of what people with certain names are like. Victorias are regal. Roses and lilies are beautiful. I wanted a name like that. My sisters had cool names. Juliet straight out of Shakespeare, and Jade, a beautiful green gem. We'd always tease Julie about finding her Romeo, and every gift we ever gave Jade was green. She had to like it because it was her name, right? To this day, I don't think I've actually ever asked her if she likes the color or not. Anyway, Melanie derives from the Greek word melas, meaning dark. It's where we get melanin, the pigment in our skin, melanoma, skin cancer, 
and melancholy. <laughs> Literally, black bile. A mental disorder characterized by sullenness, gloom, and depression. Thanks, Mom. And it's not as if I could use the persona of like a famous Mel to redeem my name, because there were none. No like celebrities, no literary characters, not even any Disney princesses. There's just Mel C and Mel B, the least cool members of the Spice Girls, and Mel Gibson. So, kind of even like worse than that, what made it worse was that I was, I was brought up in Zambia and my name was often mispronounced. So Zambians um, have this tendency of taking the E sound off the end of names that have it and adding it on to names that don't. So Jade became JD and Melanie became Melon, <laughs> which quickly turned into my childhood nickname Watermelon, the largest, roundest, heaviest of all fruit. Everyone thought this was hilarious, except me, as a young girl who wasn't growing out of my chubbiness as quickly as I'd like. A watermelon was the last thing I wanted to be associated with. And anyone who wasn't calling me watermelon was calling me Melly Belly or Smelly Belly. I had put so much thought into this by now that it became a really big deal for me. So um, it's like my name is the only thing that's holding me back from fame and glory. So I went to my mother with a very important request. Mom, take me to court. I want to change my name. Really? And uh, what would you like your name changed to? Jasmine. Like from the movie Aladdin, she was trying not to roll her eyes. Yes, then I will be beautiful like her. If you call yourself Jasmine, it doesn't make you actually look like her. You know that, right? But if my name is Jasmine, then my nickname will be Jazzy. Darling, people don't really choose their own nicknames. They just kind of come up naturally. But mom, please, she said no. I was doomed to be a depressed watermelon <laughs> for the rest of my life. And then something happened that I thought might change my mother's mind. So now I come from a very, um, a very Christian family. And when I say very, I mean like evangelical Christian. So speaking in tongues, Holy Spirit, prophesying, the whole shebang. My mom was the head of the church, so we'd often have prayer groups in our home. And one day, a visiting prophet decided he wanted to anoint the youth as future leaders of the church. So he gathered all the, group, all the youth in the, in the prayer group and uh, made us stand up in a row. Um, and then went down the line one by one, laying his hand on our forehead, muttering in tongues, and then coming up with a grand vision for the future of each kid while their parents looked on in eagerness. A mousy-haired, buttoned-up woman stood behind us, moving in parallel with the prophet, hands outstretched, ready to catch anyone who might fall under the weight of the Holy Spirit's power.
I wasn't sure if I believed in any of this, but I went along with it anyway. Now, prophets are supposed to be able to tell your future without knowing anything about you. And this guy was asking for our names first, which is kind of normal. I mean, it's fair enough. But I kind of suspected it was just because he needed something to work with. First up, David. David, I see that often you feel insignificant and small. He was quite a short guy. But the Lord says that one day you will slay giants and become a warrior for the kingdom of God. David and Goliath, I see what he did there. Next up, Abigail, my cousin. Her name means father's joy. She was the only girl in her family, and she was literally her dad's favorite child. Abigail, the Lord says that you bring the heavenly father much joy because you will bring lots of lost sheep back into the fold. Easy. My turn. And what's your name? Melanie. It means dark, I said in a challenging tone. See what you can do with that, mister. <laughs> Prophet laid his hand on my head and mumbling in tongues, shaka shaka nama. Tongues was always kind of like a variation on shaka zulu and shama namana. <laughs> and he kept going on and on for an unusually long time. So long that I could hear the sounds of adults shifting in their seats. I was keeping my eyes closed like a good Christian girl. Someone went to the kitchen and put the kettle on. <laughs> the hand on my forehead was starting to sweat. And the mousy woman behind me was getting tired of holding her hands out. I could tell because instead of two hands like gently resting on my back, there was now only one. And she kept shifting from left to right. It's very uncomfortable. Part of me was willing him to come up with something good to say about darkness and salvage the wreck that was my identity. But the other part of me saw an opportunity. If this guy didn't come up with anything good to say, my mom might see the light that God did not approve of the name she had chosen and she'd be persuaded to call me Jasmine. Finally, the prophet spoke. <clears throat> the Lord says that uh, you are as highly prized as a dark ebony. And he moved on quickly, obviously relieved. Ebony? Really? I was not impressed. So afterwards, I went up to my mum, confident that soon people will be calling me Jazzy. But alas... The prophet's pathetic ebony spiel had the opposite effect. She thought it was marvelous and it totally justified her choice. So from then on, I introduced myself as just Mel. That way, people could still think that I was a pretty Melissa or a happy Melody. And if they did, why correct them? Because after all, what's in a name?
Whatever you want to call her, Mel is a fantastic storyteller. She's also a host and a workshop leader for Hong Kong Stories. She got started, though, by coming to one of our free workshops, and you can too. If you'd like to try telling your own story, head on over to hongkongstories.com to find out how you can join a workshop and get some help crafting your story. That's hongkongstories.com. Now, with another story from 2016, here is Frida. Arriving in Kabul, I'm not quite sure what to expect. Is this going to be a land of blue burqas and wild beards and bombs that we see on TV? Or is it going to be a land of brave warriors and beautiful women and high art and culture that we read about in history and literature? Our briefing at the Pakistan embassy seems to suggest the former. Don't take photos, they warn us. Don't go out after dark. Don't talk to anyone. And to emphasize their point, they tell us harrowing tales of people who've been picked up by the notorious security service, the NDS, whisked away only to return with deep physical scars or psychological scars, or worse still, never to return at all. And hearing their stories, I'm almost glad that we, that's me, my husband, and Dr. Manzoor, who's Pakistan's ambassador to the World Trade Organization, are only there for a short while to attend a trade fair, and then we'll go back home safe to Pakistan. So the next day, we go to the trade fair, spend about an hour walking around, and then we're free with the whole day ahead of us empty. We have a car and a local driver, and though we doubt it, we ask him that is there anything to see here in Kabul? Yes, he says, of course. Don't you know, Kabul used to be the greatest city in the world. We've had very bad times, but things are getting better again. As we say in Afghanistan, after every darkness, there is light. And to illustrate his point, he takes us to Baghe Babur, the royal gardens, where the first Mughal emperor of the subcontinent is buried. During his time, Babur ruled over a vast empire and great riches, but it was always Kabul he yearned to go back to. His tombstone today carries the words that he used to describe Kabul. If there is a paradise on earth, it is this, it is this. And when he built these gardens more than 500 years ago, he built them according to his vision of paradise, with green terraces and waterways and orchards of pomegranates and apricots and almonds and grapevines. And centuries later, his gardens of paradise were turned into a theater of war. During the 1990s, these gardens were bombed and plundered and left in ruins. And over the past several years, conservationists and craftspeople have been working to restore the gardens to their original beauty and open them to the public as a park. So now when we look out over the gardens, we see all sorts of people everywhere enjoying themselves. University students, girls and boys out sitting together having a picnic. Children running around, families sitting together warming themselves under the winter sun. I'm about to take a photo, but my driver stops me. They are watching, he says, when I say, it's okay, we're fine. He says, no, they are watching. Who, I wonder? The gods? The Americans, he explains. And I look up, and then I see it. It's a white blimp, the dirigible. It's an American military surveillance balloon, ever-present in the skies of Kabul, scanning the land below with a camera said to be so strong that it can read the time of your wristwatch. 
Next, he takes us to the National Art Gallery. It's in the middle of the city, crowded with cars and people, dust and noise. But the art gallery itself is an oasis of peace, set in an old mansion surrounded by beautiful gardens. The gallery staff rush to welcome us, drawing back dusty curtains to let in the light, looking for keys to unlock the rooms of the gallery. And as we walk through the gallery, they tell us how just a few years earlier, the Taliban had walked through some of these rooms, and they had slashed and destroyed more than 200 paintings because they showed human figures, something that went against their religious code. And how the gallery staff, many of them artists themselves, had tried to save what they could by painting over the figures, turning faces into flowers, turning bodies into trees. And now that things were getting better again, they'd begun the painstaking work of removing those protective layers of paint and letting the figures re-emerge again. Soon it's back time to go back to the hotel, and our driver drops us off, but we've had such a good day, and we've had so many interesting conversations, we're simply not ready to go back to our hotels and spend a long evening in front of the TV. My husband suggests we take a walk around the neighborhood, and so we do joining the throngs of people on the wide pavements, old trees branching overhead. Before long, we come across a small bookshop. It has a turquoise-painted wooden front and large windows, and through the windows we can see piles of books stacked on the shelves, on the floors, running up along the wooden staircase. There's an old man sitting behind a desk. There's maps and artwork up on the walls. And with the golden light spilling out into the darkening evening where we stand, it looks like a bookshop from a book. And as we read the name, we realize it is a bookshop from a book. It's the bookshop from the book, The Bookseller in Kabul. <laughs> the, writer had spent, the writer had spent several months living with this bookseller during the Taliban years, and then she had written about her time with him and his family in a book. In it, she praised him for being a local hero, for continuing his book-selling business and becoming a clandestine supplier of titles that the Taliban had banned. But she also showed him as a tyrannical head of household, quite ruthless with his wives and children. Excited by our discovery, we do what anyone would do. We take a photo. I stand in front of the bookshop. My husband takes out his mobile phone. Dr. Manzur takes out his mobile phone. They take a photo of me, put their phones back, and we move on. Or I should say we try to move on, because as I'm standing there waiting to cross the road, first of all I hear a shout, which I ignore, and then I feel something against my shoulder. And I look back and I see a man standing there behind me with a uniform, and the thing on my shoulder is the tip of a rifle. I'm not sure what to do, so I smile and I indicate to him that I'm about to cross this road, so I am going to walk away from him <laughs> and his rifle. <laughs> He shakes his head. I turn back to look for my husband and Dr. Manzoor, and they too are now accompanied by men with guns, and we're being led, <laughs> we're being led towards, this, towards this building with tall, thick walls like a fortress, and there are watchtowers along the top of the wall, and in the watchtowers there are men standing there, and their guns are also trained on us. And as we go through the gate, I read the name, and this is the headquarters of the National Defense Service, the notorious NDS that we'd been so diligently warned against. They take us inside, and it's a sort of a, uh, sort of a yard, and they make us line up against a wall. It's a white wall, but I'm quite concerned to see that it's streaked with red stains. 
And we, st we stand there under a weak yellow light from a single light bulb suspended above our heads. The NDS men stand in front of us. They say something to us we don't understand, and we reply with something they don't understand. I suggest we communicate in single words. Dr. Manzoor goes first. Pakistan, he says. Then my husband. Bhai, bhai, he says, hoping that the word for brother in Pakistan is the same in Afghanistan. They turn to me. Sorry, I say, and I roll my eyes in the direction of my husband, trying to tell them that whatever has happened, and we have no idea what has happened, it's all my husband's fault. <laughs> <laughs> and they should just take him away. <laughs> and let me and Dr. Manzoor go free. None of this makes any difference, but they do seem to like the idea of communicating in single words. The senior NDS man steps forward, he puts his hand out, and he says, passport. So we hand over our passports. Then he says, phone. So my husband hands over his phone, Dr. Manzoor hands over his phone, even though it's a new super smartphone. I don't have a phone, so I just say sorry again and roll my eyes in the direction <laughs> of my husband. The man holds out Dr. Mansoor's phone and says, photo. So now we have an idea that this is something to do with the photo, probably, that they took of me outside the bookshop. Dr. Mansoor steps forward to unlock his phone, but the problem is that he has about 700 photos on his phone, and it's a new phone, so he's still not very familiar with how to use it, so he can't immediately locate that photo. So we all gather round around his phone under this weak yellow light bulb in a circle, and we go through each photo, one by one. There are several photos of the inside of Dr. Manzoor's mouth. <laughs> and Dr. Manzoor mimes to show us how he had a toothache and how he'd taken photos to send to his dentist. Our captors look at him with concern and make sympathetic noises. <laughs> Then there are a series of identical photos of a couple at a wedding. Our captors look at the photo, you know, seem to wish them well. <laughs> and by the time we've gone through this detailed chronicle of Dr. Manzoor's daily life, the atmosphere has become quite convivial. And then comes the photo. There's me standing outside the bookshop. It's dark, it's grainy, quite unremarkable. But the NDS officers, through their tone and through their gestures, make it quite clear that they want us to delete this photo. But try as we might, we simply cannot delete this photo. <laughs> the, the phone either goes back to camera mode or gallery or home screen or some funny filter. I try, my husband tries, Dr. Manzoor tries, each man in this circle from the NDS tries but this photo refuses to be deleted. <laughs> Eventually, someone does manage to delete the photo, and the whoosh of the departing image mirrors the sigh of relief that we let out. With the photo gone, passports and phones are handed back, handshakes are exchanged, smiles all around, a car appears, and finally, two hours later, we're escorted back to our hotel. As our driver had said earlier in the day, after every darkness, indeed, there is light. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to today's story brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. The music for this podcast was created and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell.